Today's episode is sponsored by Third Kingdom Games. If you're looking for new or used RPG books and original OSR old school content to use in your games, go to thirdkingdomgames.com. Welcome to Wobblies and Wizards. I am your host, Logar the Barbarian. And today, my guest is Polly Kidd. She's the author of many works, as well as uh, a game designer, publishing stuff currently under Kitsune Press. Welcome, Polly. Hi there. Nice to see you. It's nice. It's nice to have you on. I'm glad to talk to you. You've you've got quite a, what's the word I'm looking for? Quite a large library out there that you've got published at this point, both games and novels. Is that correct? Yes. I mean, I, I started... Um, I, I'm, I'm Australian, as you can probably all hear. I, I started playing role-playing games in the mid-70s. I'd come to high school and had discovered uh, miniatures wargaming. And then as D&D came out and um, Empire of the Petal Throne, I, uh, I really dived into role-playing games and I just wanted to be a games designer. So I actually wrote to people like you know, M.A.R. Barker and Dave Arneson and so on, and they wrote back and said, yeah, go out there, get those history degrees, get that literature degree, design, write, do. So I did. So I just kind of, to the dismay of our parents and everyone, it's like I went out and kind of genetically engineered myself to be a, a, a role-playing game designer and author of books of the kind of stuff RPG players like to read. And that's, that's been my life ever since. So it's been, it's been grand. That it sounds great. That's pretty amazing. It's, it's, it's a great, a great space to be able to make your living, I believe. And, and uh, you, uh, some of the stuff you've put out over the years, I'm very familiar with and, and have seen around, but could you tell the listeners some of the things you've worked on? They may be familiar with over the years. Yes. Well, uh, role-playing game-wise, I was one of the first uh, independent game designers working out of Australia. So I did a game called Albedo, which was based on a comic book series by Stephen Galacci. And that was a hard science fiction story, but it used um, humanoid animal characters and the comics were just amazing at that stage i actually started work as one of the world's first computer game designers melbourne house had hired me and they did games like the hobbit but what was happening was programmers were designing the games so the maths were great and the games were boring but they wanted <laughs> someone that was just like a narrator someone that could make the game because i turned up and i broke all of their games in like 30 seconds by doing the stuff that role-playing gamers do you know it's like um <laughs> put hats on this, kill everything, set fire to everything, um, you know, <laughs> turn doors inside out and then the computers would fall over. And I got dragged into comic stores by some of the uh, programmers and I, and I just pulled Albedo off the shelf. I was working diligently on my own systems and it's like, this story is great. And that, that artist actually introduced me to um, a broader fandom. I took Albedo over to Gen Con and the artist from the comic book series turned up and, and met me. And then he took me to like... Uh, early San Diego Comic Cons and introduced me to all the alternative um, sort of black and white comics crew and everything. So they've been friends for, for decades. But I went on and did a, um, a game called Lace and Steel, where I tried to be very groundbreaking. And it was sort of a, uh, a 1640s Cavaliers and Roundheads, Three Musketeers kind of setting, but it had a card-based combat system. But it didn't just do combat, it did battles of wit and repartee, and it did romance, and it did all the sort of things that go into romance novel, and it had 
antipathies to things and love affairs and this was all part of the actual mechanics of the game system and um which is not really something that's been played with a lot ever since but i went on from there and i began writing a lot of novels so uh tsr was my first publisher and they were great they were actually the first start for so many new writers but i did a a novel which is based on lace and steel which was called Moose of kerbridge and um in later years those publishers as they got bought over by wizards of the coast they asked me to do a lot of dungeons and dragons novels for them so i did a forgotten realms book council of blades which was rather sweet because <laughs> my editor at the time said basically he was leaving the company oh, no. and was going off to somewhere else and he said <laughs> do you want to do a forgotten realms book and i hate forgotten realms i just is it these overpowered gods and these mary sue characters everywhere but yeah so i said oh, no 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 you can do a funny one you can do one that's like very tongue-in-cheek and i'll just sign off on it yeah excellent and so it really didn't please the powers that be and the fact that it turned out to be an incredibly popular book pleased them even less but then wizards got bought over by hasbro or rather, they had one of their many sort of pogroms and they started doing third edition and they wanted novels to launch off third edition and they wanted these to be done by a gamer's gamer. So they went into their um, their sales records and said, right, sort of what were the ones that we got feedback from saying that this was clearly a book written by a gamer for gamers? So it's like, oh, the Forgotten Realms book done by, you know, Paul Kidd as I was back then. So they commissioned me to do a trilogy to kick off D&D third edition. Uh, which were based on the old um, modules. So White Plume Mountain was the first, and then uh, Descent into the Depths of the Earth, and then Queen of the Demon Web Pits. So Queen of the Demon Web Pits, I don't know if you remember, but the point of the module is you go to hell and you kill Lolf. In her <laughs> home dimension, the party kills Lolf, dead, gone. But, you know, all these Drizzt books and so on had created these kind of, the cult of Lolf, where she was their dark mistress and so on. So, so I got to write the book where you kill the main characters kill Lol. So in the actual <laughs> honest to God DD canon, she died and I done it. So it's quite funny seeing all these, these posts everywhere about how, you know, they, they brought an Australian in to, uh, <laughs> to kill to kill their true goddess. That's so. that's great. That's that's quite a that's quite a, a quite a pin to add to your hat there. <laughs> yeah. Well it's quite the other thing was like there's a, a lovely quote I liked from it because Lolf is, I wrote her sort of mildly, mildly crazy, but she gets to our, you know, the mortal realm and she's standing there on a balcony with staff behind her and she's just looking at the ruins she's made. It's like, oh, cities to burn, civilizations to destroy. Oh, I feel like a schoolgirl. Have uh, catering okay. send one up. And, <laughs> and a year later, Wizard wrote, oh, my God, you put cannibalism in the Wizards of the Coast novel. It's like, well, technically I mean, not cannibalism. Yeah, she's a god. She can eat people without it being cannibalism. <laughs> it's like it took you a whole year to notice. Oh, God. <laughs> and when fourth edition came out, they asked me to do a novel for uh, Gamma World. So I did uh, Red Sails in the Fallout for Gamma World, which was a riot. And then they kind of, they, I was supposed to do a whole quadrilogy of books and but then they they just kind of dropped gamma world unfortunately so i went and did my own post-apocalypse uh, <coughs> gamma, gamma world-esque series um self-pubbed so i've got about 30 or 40 novels out self-published on, on uh, amazon and lulu if you could real quick just tell the listeners where they can go to check out those books and maybe a few that you might suggest like hey if you want to check out your work which one where should we start with some of the self-published stuff because i'm assuming yeah. you get a little more 
financially from stuff you sell as self-published and the stuff from TSR. <laughs> so I'd write the promote that. Well, um, Amazon.com or Lulu.com. Uh, Lulu is the best place, I think, for the hard copies. And you would look up um, Paul Kidd, K-I-D-D. And uh, look, my favorite series, I did one called Spirit Hunters, which is actually um, developed from a tv series that i was asked to develop which is the samurai adventure series and it's kind of the role-playing campaign we all wish we were having <laughs> it's fox it's fox spirits and it's um irritable samurai and it's some um, you know um pretentious um would-be uh, japanese poets and uh, i'm um i'm a deep deep expert on japanese stuff i fell in love with the game bushido when it came out and I kind of dedicated half of my life to becoming a Bushido character so I'm like you know high ranked in Gobudo schools like Tenshin Shoden, Katori Shinto Ryu so I'm like a I'm a Naginata expert and a, a long sword and short sword expert and the 12 foot spear and then I went on to do like Ju Kendo and Kendo and Tan Kendo which is fully armored fencing with the long spear and short swords and so on so you know I'm that person but this um yeah uh, Spirit Hunters <laughs> is a great series and then I, I did a wonderful one called um effectuators which is sort of a steampunk it's a victorian paranormal series and it doesn't start as steampunk it is completely straight-laced victorian but as stuff happens they effectively develop the characters develop kind of steampunk technologies to deal with the paranormal stuff that they're coming up with um and those are good fun and then of course i did a, a series called gene storm which is a riotous post-apocalypse uh, romp um, and those are those are all great fun and gamers seem to really enjoy those i have many others but are, are those those are good effectuators has um been uh, pretty well received i've enjoyed doing that and has no no anachronisms in it which i like now what's the name that you i'm sorry can you say that again and spell it out for me so i know which one i'm looking for because i didn't catch the uh, name fully effectuators so e double f e c t u a t o r s Okay, effectuators. All right, I've, I've got that. I'm gonna, I'm gonna jot that down so I can look it up. <laughs> yeah, it, it's it's a word you'll only find me and Jack Vance using. So, um. <laughs> I will tell you what I had never read Jack Vance until a couple of years ago, and I read through the Dying Earth, uh... and I was I, I'm not gonna lie, I was a little bit confused as to what was going on sometimes. From chapter to chapter, it seemed to change quickly, and I I was. Like next ah. thing you know, he was being shrunk down, running in a. I, I was a little confused with the whole book. <laughs> I love Jack Vance. Um, Jack Vance. We're getting into Jack Vance. He did some um, some really great science fiction works, kind of in the same setting. But kind of a must read for him is it's down as Chai Planet of Adventure. Um, okay. T S C H A I, and those are actually five books which are now usually published in one volume, and that's a great science fiction world he did. Uh, they had names like um, the Neum, the Didier, these sorts of things, and um, yeah, the Dying Earth kind of series. In the Dying Earth, he did two novels, which are really collections of short stories, and one of them was called Kujil Saga, sometimes called Kujil the Clever, but it's the ultimate rogue book because the whole thing is a fast talk artist trying to basically glibly get his way out of trouble and somehow save himself from being horribly killed on this long rambling adventure. His only assets are 
a uh, innate ability to get the hell out of Dodge when things start going south <laughs> and to desperately come up with vaguely plausible explanations for long enough to confuse people. And um, it's anyone that's ever played a rogue in a role-playing game needs to read that book. It's your model. It was great. I knew Jack Vance well. He was a good friend. Jack Vance? Oh, you did? I that's that's cool. <laughs> he was one of my men Jack Jack was one of my mentors. Oh wow. As a computer games designer, you know, I did the I did the Lord of the Rings text games and so on. And I did the first or I did all of the spoken text for those for the first one. Then I did the designs for like the second and third, as well as the text. But then I went on to do things like I did the first Nintendo games that were done outside of Japan. Airwalk. Uh, and those sorts of things and uh, you know oh, 30 40 titles there and uh freelancing as a computer game designer i did things like the discworld games with terry pratchett i knew terry pratchett uh very well he'd been a friend for some years we'd gone to conventions t- and we were both the only commonwealthy sorts at them so we kind of um we we uh we put the wagons in a circle to fort up against crazy Americans every now and then. <laughs> we remained firm friends ever since. So when they were doing a computer game based on his books, he got me over to do the design and all the text work and so on and that. So um, those were great fun. And that also meant working very closely with people like um, Eric Idle from Monty Python, John oh, Pertwee, yeah. who used to play Doctor Who. John Pertwee? Is, yeah. You have no idea. My Doctor Who obsession has been off the hook my entire life. John Pertry, I love. <laughs> oh, he awesome. was such a he was such I, a gentleman to me. He was because so, I would be in the studio, kind of doing the voice acting opposite them, so that they could have someone to react against. And he was just such a delight. Actually, my um, my better half is, is in San Francisco, and she used to be John Pertwee's minder at conventions. She had oh, the really? thankless task of catching him because if anyone who had anything to do with like old cars turned up he would just oh you've got such and such and he would just go and they would go off driving this thing somewhere and she'd be like <laughs> he's on a panel in one hour and eight minutes and she's got to find out where he's gone collar him and get him back into the convention center and on stage <laughs> oh the, it, john Pertry in the cars was that was a huge theme throughout his run in doctor who too he had he had uh bessie the the which was the who one <clears> license plate the little yellow car then he had the other one the other one which is like a little more futuristic vehicle and of all the doctors, he had way more chase scenes. And I swear, it planted a spider. Sometimes there'd just be an entire 25-minute episode where the whole thing was just a really long chase. And it wasn't quite as interesting as the rest of the story. Because yeah. <laughs> Quick, into the hovercraft. Hovercraft <laughs> chase. Yes, that, that was planted of the spiders, the hovercraft yeah. chase. I loved it. Oh, praise to the great one. Yes. <laughs> Oh, oh God! That was that. that I love playing the spiders. This is one of my all-time favorites because you get to see someone else from the Doctor's race in there from Gallifrey. Oh God! Oh yes. There's <laughs> um, a guy called Chuck McKenzie, who's an Australian fan, who's a dead ringer for that master. He's got like the grey shot goatee, oh. and he's got that angular face, and whatever, so he's just a he a walking cosplay. It's wonderful. Yeah. Robert Delgado's master. Yes. That, oh he boy. was he was also one that I was obsessed with as a kid. Like I, I had way too big of an obsession growing up with that show. Oh. It was it was bad. <laughs> well, I, was, I was living over in uh, living over in the UK for quite some time working on these. And it was sort of interesting because this company had all these other projects going on. So I don't know if you ever saw the show The Young Ones. Oh with, yeah. Uh, oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so for some reason we got taken over and I got to sort of spend a couple of days with uh, Nigel Planner, who played oh. you. And of course, now 
I'm a designer and an author, which means I am beyond poor. I'm not joking. I live way beyond below the um, poverty level. I'm I'm literally couch surfing. This is where a, a a life of this lives, but I'm happy. But there's Nigel Planner who's living in a boat off the Isle of Dogs and whatever, and he comes to me. Says, yeah, I'm thinking of giving up acting because I really want to be a games designer. It's like come outside with me right now. No, leave the party. Come on, we're, we're going for a walk. And it was the long walk about, do you see the see the houseboat you live in? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> if you can guess how many houseboats I own, son. <laughs> it's like, no, 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 no. <laughs> oh, man, that's a bummer. <laughs> he always, yeah. he always, oh, well, <laughs> techno fear. When, um, when Rick Mile died, I loved Adrian Edmondson. Oh, yeah. He gave a wonderful speech and he said um you know he and rick had gone to uni together and they'd done their first stand-up comedy together they'd done their first open mic stuff together they got basically married together and raised families together and they they'd launched their show and then they'd had this theater life and tv life together and they'd just been inseparable and now the selfish bastard's gone and died without me <laughs> <laughs> oh they were great and he went on he wasn't in some of the later shows. I'm trying to remember, like they did Bottom and stuff like that too. They did a few other sitcoms. Rick Mayall did, didn't he? Yeah. And Adrian oh, yeah. Edmondson. I can't remember if, if Nigel was in those or not. Uh, I don't think he was in some of those. No, he wasn't. But then he was in things like um, Yellowbeard and so on. So blessing. I'm not. Um, I'm not familiar with that one. I have to check. Oh, that out. Yellowbeard is one of the ultimate role-playing games movies. It's um. It's Graham Chapman as Yellowbeard, who's a wonderful, murderous pirate. It's a role-playing gamers movie. You know, it's like, <laughs> he's just violent. And um, <laughs> all right, we're going to disguise him to get past the police and everything. So we'll disguise him as a professor because we're going hunting this lost treasure. And <laughs> right, um, we, we could say we're on a botanical expedition. Yeah. Killing plants. <laughs> <laughs> I tell you, and, and this there's this new show out now. If you haven't seen it, you may have. Uh, it's on HBO Max. It's called Our Flag Means Death. Oh, and it's a pirate, a pirate show. And I, I think it's gonna be the next big thing. I, I watched it, I was in love with it. It is it is very funny. It's Taiga Watiti who did um who did like uh, uh what's that in, in the oh, what's that vampire one that's real popular what we do in the shadows oh okay yeah and he's doing a pirate thing that I, everybody has to check out <laughs> oh <laughs> god saying. there's a there's a you i mean you probably got a lot of american um listeners there's a british show that they have to find you can find bits for it on youtube and some but it's called bluestone 42 Blue it's Stone about 14. a british yeah bluestone 42 and it's it's a it's a kind of a dark comedy about a British bomb disposal team in Afghanistan, and it's oh. British and Scottish humor. Wonderfully, you've got the the, uh, the the terribly upper class sort of officers and the uh, oh. lower class. But you know, it's like uh, <laughs> you know, the captain sort of comes out and the colonel standing there and says, "Oh, what's the weather like today, Medhurst?" Says, "Oh, looked a bit warry to me, sir." Says, "Right, oh, tin hats <laughs> on. <laughs> Carry on, but you know, you've got these." Uh, Scottish fellas who are free because they're basically they have the brains of a house plant, so they have no worries. They're not worried about dying. They're not worried about really anything. So their life is just pure joy. They're these absolute Zen characters. And they'll have these <laughs> wonderful rambling conversations about life, the universe, everything, and then just kind of like the universe, standing around with rifles and they look around and it's like, wait a fuck, where is everybody? Is the whole team's gone? All the armored vehicles are gone. It's like, oh shit, you know. <laughs> There's this. There's this whole, see, I subscribe to like 
I, I pay for and subscribe to two streaming services, the Disney because it's got Star Wars and superheroes and BritBox because it's got Doctor Who and Red Dwarf and um, keeping uh-huh. up appearances and all that. I've had an obsession with British television since I was a kid watching Doctor Who on PBS in the States and they always show the oh, old sitcoms wow. and reruns so all that stuff was <laughs> well writing stuff for eric idol was nerve-wracking because it's like i grew up as a monty python fan when monty python aired on tv my little brother and i would be incoherent we'd be laughing so hard we'd be crying mm-hmm. and so to then be writing comedy to go in the mouths of people like eric idol you just you're <laughs> offering these things up look look i've done it because like it's the job but just tear it to pieces and burn it and then just 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 kill me i'm not worthy please just like yeah but um no though again they're very kind and they're very uh, very good people to work with so no, that's cool eric idol like is a, like a legend in my mind i've been seeing him on 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 these sitcoms and stuff or in in his comedies and the movies and stuff they did back in the day since as long as i can remember i i i, I grew up with that kind of stuff and then, you know so that would be yeah cool. I, I would be thrilled it, about that and it's interesting talking with these people because you know uh, someone that like I've written a lot of comedy and you know, I've done a lot of comedy comic books and this sort of stuff. And then you get to sit down with these people and talk about essentially the science and art of writing comedy. You know, what were you trying to do and how were you doing it? Um, I love meeting people who work in different disciplines to myself because, you know, I've, I've written in virtually every single type of writing there is. But I love meeting a sculptor or you know, a metal worker or an or you know, I spent obviously a lot of time with cartoonists and animators and so and then the comedians are great it's like how do you go about it what are you doing so you are you know as you look at like the pythons and so well your comedy is um absurdism uh, marty fellman who was sort of their mentor the idea is that four men in bowler hats and suits standing around talking about the weather is inherently tedious. Four <laughs> men in bowler hats and suits sitting in rubbish bins that are filled with porridge talking about the weather is inherently funny <laughs> because if they do not acknowledge the situation, it is absurd. So, you know, it's like these kind of things. I actually, I grew up with the goon show. The, um, the, go- what's the gong show? Is that the, the goon show of Spike Milligan and uh, I'm not uh, familiar with that Peter Sellers? I remember oh Peter God. Sellers. I, I know Peter, Peter Sellers. Sellers well. He he also played Quilt. Was his name Quilty in uh, <laughs> that movie? Oh, if you ever watch um, Doctor Strange Love, Peter Sellers is yes. pretty much the entire cast. Yes. Um, it was a radio show um, largely written by um, Spike Milligan, which was uh, incredibly popular in um, well in the entire Commonwealth in the fifties, and uh, it continues to live. And it was it was a radio comedy, so it was it all had to be sonic. So it painted these absurd pictures that were done only with sound. So it was just brilliant stuff. These um, absurd situations, voice comedy, and it was just brilliant. I I got the chance to sort of work with Spike Milligan briefly. He was uh, completely crazy, lovely, but very very bipolar guy. So it was it was an incredible honor to meet him. But they wanted me to work with him, and it's like you can't work with him. This is just known everywhere. You're like, he does what he does, and that's what he does. <laughs> you know, and, that's, and that's why he's kind of a genius. <laughs> um, but you know, you, no, no, you just, if, if you want a 30 minute thing with him, you'll record four hours and then you'll have to just get some scissors out and edit because it's like, <laughs> there'll, be, there'll be genius in there, but there'll be some. Um, <laughs> 
<laughs> it will go off on a tangent. That, that, but, that was, uh, was wonderful. The Goon Show was brilliant, and um, th that was that was sort of where I learned comedy from as a kid. I guess I, I did a lot of comic books, also um, working with um, like the Albedo guys and this sort of thing. But um, black and white kind of alternative comics, it it kind of vanished um, into the nineties. It was very very hard to make this stuff pay and it's incredibly labor intensive for everyone involved oh oh so i did i did uh, i did little independent comics back in the 90s and early 2000s and you it was at a point i was i there was like if you can sell these for a couple bucks a piece at a, at a convention or wherever and we didn't have the online print on demand and stuff like that that we have now when i was doing it but if you could sell a few you'd be lucky if you could recoup the money you spent to print the thing so it was not oh, yeah. a profitable thing. <laughs> I think we figured you needed on. like you needed like three thousand sales, I think, to break even on printing a printing a print run. And yeah, that was pretty rare. But oh well. <laughs> yeah, it was hard. No one was breaking even. Even like I was involved with a lot of people who were putting out these comics, and nobody could break even if you printed these things out. <laughs> That's why I went over to the fine art. There's an online kind of D and D based. <laughs> Adults only comic called Oglaf. Have you seen that? I have not. I'm not familiar with it. Oh my god! Okay, it it's is called... definitely O G L A F Oglaf. O G L A F Oglaf. Um, it's done by um some artists who were from the the Australian alternate comic scene. They used to do a comic called Platinum Grit in the '90s. Now they've hit this stride with Oglaf, which is an online D and D based. Definitely adults only comic, and it is essentially R rated, occasionally X rated uh, D and D, and it's absolutely gut rippingly funny. The art's solid. I just googled it, and it, it's yeah, I like the art. It's really well. It looks real cool. Oh, full of wonderful ideas, and 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 yes, yeah, there's a great comedy there. Um, but uh... <laughs> well, I'm definitely as of now, I'm going to be following Ogluff on Twitter, which you can find his well, fifty six point two thousand followers. I am not the first person to discover this. <laughs> <laughs> People and uh, yeah, they are DD <laughs> players. Those I went to an Australian comic con, it was quite funny. There was like a very pretentious um, group of guys that were trying to do a cyberpunk comic, and <clears throat> one of these one of these other creators, he basically crawled through the um, acoustic ceiling and had someone else lower him by his ankles so that he could <sighs> vandalize someone's billboard that they had in front of their stand without being seen because it was like a cyberpunk guy in the rain holding his gun, you know, long coat. The wraparound sunglasses, and he put um, talk balloons around it, and it just said in small talk balloons scattered around, "My dialogue disjointed. I must wallow in my own pretensions." <laughs> so I just walk past as these people I've never met are doing this. Is like, dude, that's cold. Who are you? <laughs> oh, you do this booth. All right, <laughs> I'll just let you um, into the ceiling. Yes. <laughs> I think, I'm sure they worked very hard on uh, on getting the image for that poster, right? <laughs> Poor fellers. <laughs> that is funny, though. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah. I wanted to just really briefly, because you had mentioned something earlier about the Empire of the Petal Throne. I wanted to ask about that. Like, I know you were a big Empire of the Petal Throne. There's been some things said Ooh, lately. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. If I, yeah. Are you oh, interested no, please in getting do. into that? <laughs> I would definitely yeah, talk um, about that. Absolutely. Well, look, you know, if I can say at the start, uh, I know the um, people from the Tech and Mill Foundation and uh, Victor from the foundation is really good people. But so 
Empire of the Petal Throne was the second role-playing game that was ever really published by TSR, and it was the first role-playing game setting that was ever published. It was a box set, and it was exquisite. You know, you've got these little brown D&D books that come out at the time, which were pretty minimal, and then you've got Empire of the Petal Throne, which has entire languages and alphabets. It's got vast maps of huge empires. It's got, it's got history. It's got cultures. It's got, you know, wow and it was the first campaign i ever played and it absolutely blew my mind and in my kind of 15 16 year old enthusiasm i wrote off to the author to just say how amazing this was and uh, as i said i actually wrote off to you know him and dave arneson and son and uh they wrote back and barker wrote back to say um you know wow thank you very much for your interest and look he encouraged me to go and be a designer and a writer and yes get those history degrees and get those literature degrees and 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 do it and go for it i stayed in contact with him for the rest of his life just you know sending letters back and forth occasionally and just um keeping track of what he was doing and uh i have several friends in his area who were sort of would play in his uh, play group there was an ongoing campaign there that that um kept on going so uh yeah he was a very important figure to me and um yeah, just recently, uh, the foundation, uh, you know, Marker died and he, the IP is now being taken care of by the TechML Foundation, who are there to um, make sure that publications keep coming out and, you know, keep the legacy going. But they had to make a, a statement because it turns out that M.A.R. Barker was a Nazi, not Someone vaguely interested in Nazism who really liked watching the History Channel, I mean, a card-carrying Nazi. He had written a uh, horrendous Nazi novel under a pseudonym, which went out under a publisher of white supremacist and neo-Nazi material. The blurbs on the back of that book are horrifying. And I'm an old school author. You know, I was published before the digital age. There's a thing called proof copies. You can't say you didn't know this. You get sent a copy of the book by the publisher who says, is that okay with you? And if you don't like it, well, then they change it. No, he liked it. But as it turns out, um, you know, it went further than that because he was on the editorial board of a thing called the Journal of Historical Review, which was the um, essentially the magazine that was published through the 80s, 90s, and into 2004, this is what's responsible for Holocaust denial. This was the flagship of that. It was a white supremacist, anti-Semitic magazine dedicated to the proposition that, uh, you know, the Holocaust either didn't happen or was largely invented, and that, uh, you know, um, the um, superior white, white race must, um, you know, sally forth and... Um, uh, stomp on other races and uh, yeah he was involved with the uh, institute that published it and it's a it's a horrible mess so um i mean kudos to the foundation for making their release and they have said after due process they are perfectly satisfied that the evidence is in these aren't mysterious typos this isn't a weird accounting error the wife has sort of like confirmed it manuscripts have been found amongst his papers that were left uh he done it all right so yeah that's been for me that's been a real tragedy because someone that i really looked up to as it turns out would have cheerfully headed a group that would exterminate me i'm not jewish but i am trans um yeah and so i did a video on my um i have a youtube review channel called lace and steel and yeah i had to do a, a video on that about the ethics 
of separating the art from the artist because a lot of people of course we're going to punt it on and shake their fists and it's like well you know as someone that's actually done you know ethical philosophy and so on you know at a degree level this is what you're looking at these are the actual considerations to bear in mind this is the ethics of separating art from the artist here's what you have to bear in mind and these are the decisions you'll have to make it is actually a problem that can be broken down into segments it's not mysterious it's not magical one of the things it does boil down to however is that i believe we tell the world a lot about ourselves by what we are willing to overlook if you say oh you know J.K. Rowling doesn't do all that much damage by championing anti-trans causes and, you know, forcing lots of teenagers to suicide. I'll just keep supporting her. That lets us know a little bit about you. And in this case, it's like, well, you know, this is material done by a Nazi, a guy that was pushing a white supremacist racist agenda. And unfortunately, when you go back and look at the material, you can see that those attitudes have actually informed a lot of the background. A lot of stuff in the 70s that you just sort of took as like, yeah, Robert E. Howard kind of subjugate women and, you know, lots of kind of white guys beating up on lots of kind of not white guys. When you go through the thing, it looks very empowering initially, but there's some, some disturbing elements which, you know, I think should be redone. But the main problem is that there is a right-wing element in uh, role-playing gaming at the moment. Uh, and in fact, there is a worse than right-wing element in role-playing gaming. There's definitely, don't call them outright, call Nazis Nazis. And of course, to have an original property done by sort of one of the, the old, old, old greats of role-playing games come out as being done by your Nazi, that really helps their propaganda. This is our space, not yours. This was always done by us, you know, so... Um, you know, woke and social justice warriors are invading our space and we're the valiant soldiers defending it. So so on that basis, it's like I personally thought I can't support this property anymore unless I see incredibly strenuous efforts being made by the foundation to reclaim it. I think it's doomed to basically be a rallying point for the right. Yeah. And um, the problem with the foundation is it's a big committee, which means they don't do anything at speed. So um, I think they will, as a function of being a big committee, be completely unable to pick up the ball on this one until it's too late. They will try doing some stuff, but it might be many months down the line. Now, I got a question for you that kind of piggybacks off of this because I watch your videos. I like them. Um, and, and listeners, check out her YouTube uh, channel. Follow it. She, she reviews all kinds of role-playing games, the kind of stuff we like to talk about here. Good stuff. <laughs> <laughs> You did say there was like three points specifically. I want to say they each started with a P perhaps that you had pointed out. Yeah. Look, the reasons, the things that you're looking at, if you're thinking about separating art from an artist, there are three reasons why you might stop following and supporting something. Essentially, it's profit, it's perception, and it's platforming. So profit does the horrible person reap profit from their horrible activities. So like in the case of, say, J.K. Rowling stuff, is she profiting from pushing anti-trans stuff? Yes, she is. She's done an entire anti-trans novel under a pseudonym she's reaping in millions from. So maybe not buy that mm -hmm. since the money will and the, the power, you know. Is, but in the case of, say, M.A.R. Barker, he's dead. So he's not going to specifically profit from it. And the foundation does take money from Tecamil products itself, but they're basically using those to create more Tecamil products. So, so, you know, that is fine. Perception is very personal. It's like, is the, is the product tainted in your heart? 
does the fact that what this person has done is that going to just be there every time you play it are you going to be thinking about that I have to say, like in Barker's case, that is kind of so for me, um, because it's like, what the hell? (laughs) (laughs) As you go through these settings and it's like, oh, my God, your your personal mileage may vary. And that's a very personal call. The artist always informs the art. Yes. You may think that the two things are separate, but the attitudes are there somewhere. Sigh. And these were very long running attitudes this yes. gentleman was active for decades but the last one is platform and that's what i was saying uh, can the art be used to cause harm does this person's fame give them a pulpit to preach their harmful attitudes and so again in the case of say a jk rowling yes they use their fame as the pulpit to spread harmful anti-trans messages but again barker is dead so normally you'd think aha well obviously he can't advance anything, but there are people willing to step up and do it for him. There are people willing to rally to that. There may be ways to turn that frown upside down <laughs> because the uh, the, the uh, right wing Nazis that types that I've seen, particularly in gaming, are um, they have this the, the American right wing has a thing about owning the libs. God damn it! If you made Tecumel woke, if you put a disclaimer the way like Wizards of the Coast did, and that's it's there on all of their products. And if you kind of did a, a Tecumel for the new age, well, this is like a hundred years after the old published one. And this is where we've broken up these kind of ethno states and we've kind of, um, you know, some of the misogyny is gone and we've made this new thing. I think they'd be so outraged that they would boycott the thing. <laughs> off their own. Um, yeah. There's, so, there's a lot of reaction to anything. I think that would be the plan. And that's what that's kind of what the but the foundation has to do that. I can't do it because I can't publish anything without their say so. No um, doubt. But I, I that would be the way forward to basically um reclaim. I think that I think that there's a lot of creators out there that have done that with even like like Lovecraft. That recent TV series Lovecraft Country seemed to do like a reclaiming of all that in a similar way. And I don't know if there was any of that reactionary talk from the right online like they do, but the. Uh... Well, there sort of was. Um, uh, like <laughs> Call of Cthulhu, whose new edition tr- tried to handle it, did a good job of, you know, disclaiming and so on. I have seen some horrible boards from people saying they're just going to run all the racist stuff at pe- for people at conventions anyway, but that's because there's just something yeah. wrong with them. Yeah, <laughs> it's like just play the game. Yeah, there's, but yeah. oh well. <laughs> That's a that, we could we could probably really delve into that topic for quite a while if we want to, <laughs> and I'm sure we will here at some point in time. Yeah, I I just find it funny. You know? <laughs> in, in 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 Australia we don't have this problem so much. In America it's fairly endemic. Yeah, and unfortunately been, that means online. So yeah, there's been something going on here in the U.S. that has been a little trouble, and, and honestly that's part of the reason why we kind of talked about trying to do this uh, podcast that we do because we wanted to to have a different bend than some of the people who are being very loud and vocal out there saying those kinds yeah. of things and create a space that you know at a point like this nazi stuff's not okay like some of this bigotry and stuff that's going on now that's that's not okay i find it weird because it's like the stuff that i've seen from people trying to make inclusive games it's been great they've had mm-hmm. you know there's some fantastic stuff great ideas really kind of bold colorful fancy worlds it steps out of that kind of dreary you know very middle european kind of 
tropes that we've we've had for 50 years but now people yes. like really kind of playing with the medium so and the fact that there's things like drive through and so on out there means that a lot of small press can really get this stuff out there so it's it's a vibrant time for role playing games oh yeah and that's one of the things that i've said before i like so let's take I, i'm not a big hasbro uh person i don't promote a lot of what they put out cuz uh, not because they have taken the opportunity to try to make make improvements and be socially conscious that's a positive but mostly because they're a big corporation whose board profits i'd rather push people to support financially independent creators so that's mm. my issue with hasbro is it's not it's definitely not that they're doing the right thing <laughs> it's that i'd rather the creators get more than the company so that has been my statement about that for years hasbro are kind of i mean i deal with them a lot obviously because like you know, I have royalties come in from them when I talk to the legal department and so on. But the main thing I always find with Hasbro is that they don't, half the time, they don't really know what they own. <laughs> so when I've spoken to them about resurrecting old IP that they have, like, I'll do that for you. I'll, I'll, I'll do Boot Hill for you. Or I'll do, <laughs> I, I, there is my uh, twice a year email to send out to them saying, please let me redo Star Frontiers for you. <laughs> uh, um, and um, yeah, oh, we own that? Yes. Yes, you do. (laughs) I I don't want to get too much into much of what I'm about to say, but I think they're going to be looking a little more at what they do own and don't own. Yeah, I I think they're doing it now. (laughs) I had had some good emails with them last night. Do we own this? Yeah, let's find out what it is. They they know now, as in because because they're corporate. Now I'm dealing with some of the um, I mean some of their role playing people came in last night that was quite funny we're having a good laugh about stuff because have like, you been following this oh yeah no no uh i assure you the entire uh role-playing world has been following this it's like um uh, the popcorn's out and it's like oh did i miss anything <laughs> uh, it's, there's, it's absurd it's absurd well we're about on time i'm gonna have to i'm gonna have to do my outro here we're gonna... <laughs> thank you so much for coming on it's been great talking to you I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you. It's been great. Oh, yeah. Before we go, could you just give the listeners an idea where they can find you online from your YouTube channel to your site and everything else? Fine. Well, uh, I have my YouTube review channel, which is called Lace and Steel. And that's, um, that is game reviews, uh, focusing a lot on role-playing games, but also miniatures and, and tabletop games. So it's all that stuff that we love. Uh, you can find my works as largely as Paul Kid, and you can find them on amazon.com novels and so forth and on lulu.com novels and on drive through you'll also find independent games and modules and so on that i've done you look up kitsune press as in the japanese fox kitsune is my little company you will find that on drive through and there's so there's in, independent games that I've done and also um, modules for things like Starships and Spacemen and so on that I've done. But I've also done a lot of stuff for specific publishers. So if you searched Paul Kidd, you find I've done like um, campaign settings for Castles and Crusades, stuff for Warriors of Mars and all these sorts of things. So I am, I'm scattered throughout role-playing lore. And the, um, the Wizards of the Coast books and so on, those are sold by Wizards of the Coast. They do audio books of them. And uh, I don't, I think they're out of print, print, but they are sold as ebooks and audio books and this sort of thing. So they come from their sites as well as Amazon. So digital me. Wee! <laughs> well, thank you for coming on. 
And I want to thank my listeners for listening. If you've enjoyed what you've heard here today, please go ahead and just give it a, a quick positive rating or a review wherever you're listening. And those of you that have, thank you so much. That really helps. You can find us on Facebook. Just search Wobblies and Wizards. Wobbliesandwizards.com is our blog. I'm on Twitter at LogarHailCrom. We have a Patreon. Any support we can get on there would be, we'd be really grateful for. Patreon.com backslash Wobblies and Wizards. And I want to thank those of you who are supporting us on there so much from the bottom of my heart. And as always, keep those dice rolling.